Hello, Great Minds. It's Tuesday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History as we get ready to remember the ladies. So welcome to the show, everyone. Nothing like a lie to start off season four, uh, but scheduling and traveling made it easier to release the Women's History Month special before my solo on Jeanette Rankin, which will be out uh, next week. So yeah, that's what I did. Uh, as always, though, I'm your host, Mr. DGMH, otherwise known as Zach DeBacco. And as we sluggishly meander into season four, I invited... Okay, it was Kelly's idea, I'll be honest with you. It was a good idea after scheduling crisis after crisis after crisis uh, and me sending 17 texts. Kelly came up with a good idea. Let's just invite the ladies uh, for our Women's History Month special. And I think that's totally fine. Plus, you never know if Luke's going to show up for the recording anyway. So <laughs> had to get one shot in. Anyway, uh, so I brought on the ladies of DGMH together to share the stories of some women that we think had a profound, sometimes overshadowed impact on U.S. or world history. I think we said U.S., but I guess it's anything. And uh, to do that, of course, I am joined by the first lady of shots, old three-finger Jack herself, Kelly Rizell. How are you, Kelly? Welcome back to DGMH. I'm great. It feels like we haven't done this in a long time. It's been two months, I think. Two, three months. Yeah, I think. Yeah, probably close to that by the time we finally record and release this. It has been a long time, but we're glad to be back. Absolutely. Um, anything that you want to say before we, we move on to our next guest or just a quick hi, hello? I'm glad Sherry's here. I feel like it's even longer since I've done a podcast with her, too. <laughs> I know. Sherry's our rogue recorder who who sneaks in. One. When was the what? last one? Yeah, the Battle Royale. I'd say it was the Battle Royale. So whenever we got all the great minds together, and I don't think Luke showed up for that one. Because um, I think that was I think that was the one that he had a, like a meeting and we kept saying it was, I think that's the one we made all kinds of sexual innuendos at Luke's expense and we had to call and ask if it was okay. Oh, well. What can you do? Uh, I, think, I think it's fair game to say that we have been together drinking just not podcasting yes we have been we have been drinking we have been together yes and we all got together for of course the uh the speaking engagement when Colin was in town which was a blast so uh yes we've been together and we've been drinking but who is that mysterious voice you may wonder listener well that is none other than uh the next lady of dgmh because we couldn't really be remembering the ladies of dgmh if we didn't also invite on our psychology all-star that's right it's the wawa ice queen herself Dr. Sherry Valencic. Hi, Sherry. How are you? Hello, I'm great. Did you know that they just opened the 250th Wawa in the state of Florida in St. Pete uh, this week? Ooh. Uh, no, I didn't know that. Why would I know that? <laughs> well, and I guess why the question is, how do I know that? Because, <laughs> because I follow Wawa on social media. Got to know where they all are. So, yeah, 250th. It was fun. in St. Pete I... somewhere this week. I love it. Ice for everyone. That's a good, that's a good line. I, I think that's perfect. Oh my, well, I tried, and I know this is going to disappoint me to say, but I tried to get Mrs. DGMH to come on tonight too, as another lady of DGMH, but Jackie ended up having to work tonight it was her random time in the month where she has to teach a, a lesson in the evening. So she could not, uh, not she could either prep a person or uh, nor uh, come on tonight, but uh, maybe next time. So what's everyone drinking tonight? Sherry, you want to start us off? Um, well, since we are uh, a day away from our spring vacation, I needed to be in a festive tropical mood. So uh, my favorite little girly drink is a uh, key lime cooler. It's a whipped cream mm -hmm. vodka with limeade. Um, and I, I will say that my limeade was expired a little bit, but it tastes okay. So if I don't show up to work tomorrow, um, maybe there'll be a, a consequence for that. But it tastes okay right now. But that's my, my favorite just little little nothing drink, but it's quite tasty. Oh, I love it. You know, speaking of what's traditionally considered a ladies' drink, one of my favorite cocktails is, in fact, the, uh, the Cosmopolitan, the Cosmo. Uh, I am a cosmopolitan drinker big time i was gonna make cosmos but i had uh i had no cranberry juice uh and i had no uh nothing really to to make it cosmo e so it was either straight vodka or in lye or just uh just grab a yingling uh lager uh holding out for the day the yingling decides to sponsor the show but uh i'm also my shot i'll talk about later but it's a sipping shot so i'm sipping it too nothing says women's history month like a yingling <laughs> mm-hmm 
<laughs> on DGMH, that's kind of true. Uh, <laughs> Kelly, what are you drinking tonight? I am having a little rosé in my Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, wine glass. There so. we go. That's that's women's history right there. It's fitting. <laughs> what's, what's the rosé? What, what? I got the one you told me about. I think it's from Portugal, the Seastone. Oh, you're drinking Seastone rosé. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that. I don't know if the rosé is one of the ones from Portugal or if it's because the Vini Verge is from Portugal. I don't know if the rosé is a Vini Verge or not. Well, that's exciting, Sherry. Are you um, yeah, drinking? It looks like it's from Connecticut. <laughs> oh, that's the the Portugal of New England, as but they say. Like, product of portugal well wow. there, there is actually there, there's actually a pretty sizable portuguese there's a sizable portuguese population in connecticut in massachusetts and connecticut new england was a a, a haven for portuguese uh emigres in the uh in the 1900s yes uh you would find in boston you will find a good mix of uh luso greek or greco-portuguese uh mixed uh families uh my good friend is a greco-portuguese uh you know, person, I guess. I don't think that's an official title. It is Portugal. I did read, I guess it was imported by, by Connecticut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got to import it somewhere. Why not the Portugal of New England? Why not? <laughs> they say Hartford's the Lisbon of the New World. I don't know. Oh my. Yeah, I'm drinking a Lee Yingling, but I'm also sipping something else, which I'll talk about later. I got to sip it down to the point where it's a shot worthy kind of thing. Uh, because two yinglings just doesn't get me there anymore, I guess. So, well, it gets me there in, in a different way, but still, I love it. I love it. Well, let's get to it. As we take an episode to remember the ladies, I would like to call back to that now famous quote, Abigail Adams, to her husband, John, basically saying, if men alone run this new nation, that is the United States, they will totally fuck it up. And they fucking did. Now, obviously, those aren't Abigail's word choices, but I think that if you read the letter, that's pretty much what she was saying. From political pissing contest to trails of tears to civil wars, the men who built America seem to really know how to do one thing above all else. Fuck it up. Whether they lacked morality, sensibility, or something else, I can't say. But I know one thing. We men are fucking idiots when we want to be. So tonight we are looking at some of the more badass women of history. But first, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. So, what should we open with? Tonight, we are recognizing women's history, which we should and do all the time. Uh, so why March? We were talking about that in pregame a lot. It just seems like, A, that's when what, Sherry? <laughs> I, just, I had a rubber band in my hand, and it just snapped, and it hit me in the face. <laughs> oh, my God. It kind of hurts. <laughs> I was on fire. <laughs> I know it feels like on camera, but damn, it hurt. Wow. It looked like you busted in the line. Are you all right? I've only had a half a beverage. I, I think so. I think I'm going to have a welt, though. Oh, my gosh. I look forward to seeing that tomorrow. I don't know. I think I was saying why, March. Right. We talked about this. You know, Women's History Day went from a day to a week to a month, and we're celebrating Women's History Month. Uh, right here in the United States uh, with a special episode, a Women's History Month special. And I asked Sherry and Kelly to come with their own stories of women's history. Are you holding, what is, are you holding an ice pack to your face now? I'm holding the vodka bottle to my face. Oh, well, it's cold. Oh, the Everybody have your DGMH first aid kits ready. Sherry's got her uh, DGMH ice pack of, of chilled vodka on her face. Not how I saw the start of the episode going. Um, but on that note, speaking of starting the episode, so we brought a story or two of our uh, the women of our choosing who really you know showcase a piece of women's history. I think we're all sick of the United States tonight. Uh, you know, Cullen and Luke might take us international for uh, Patreon next episode when we celebrate the uh, DGMH New Year at the end of the month. Um, but we'd like to start us off. Sherry, do you want to go first, or are you too? incapacitated by your injury let me let me recuperate for a couple minutes here I, i'm gonna volley to kelly all right kelly you want to go first with who you're talking about and the story we need to know i will go first um so when zach you know propositioned us about women's history and to pick just one woman that was by far the hardest um decision because i i even told him i had like 
18 minds in my head. Um, but I kind of went back to a woman that I learned about in um, college because I my focus was on the civil rights movement. And so mine is, in my opinion, is the backbone of the civil rights movement. That would be Ella Baker. Well, before you go on, Kelly, I would like to thank you for just making me sound like a stupid stereotypical man who said, just pick one woman to talk about on the show. <laughs> that's not what I meant. <laughs> and that's not what I did. I just, we can't talk about all the women of history in one singular episode. But, but because this idiotic man told you to dumb it down to just one woman of significance in history, Kelly, why did you choose Ella Baker? Who is she? And what do we need to know? Sherry is suffering, everyone. I just... Can we, like, screenshot? I, I, I am recording the video, so I might take a few shots of this. Oh, my gosh. Okay, everybody. Oh. Kelly, talk to us about Ella Baker. Okay, so... um. Ella Baker, um, like I said, she's pretty much lesser known in the civil rights movement, especially when you're talking about big names like Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis, but I don't think any of them would have really shined without her. So she, um, her grandmother was actually born into slavery, and her inspiration came from her grandmother because her grandmother was a badass. And, you know, her grandmother was a slave, and um, she was told she had to marry another slave, and she said, no, I'm not doing it, even knowing the consequences that would come of that and did, she still refused, and so Ella saw her as like, you know what, that's my inspiration, that's who kind of is my guiding light. So she did grow up and you know, the time of the Harlem Renaissance, so she had surrounded by this. So she started out in the NAACP in the 1940s. And she's slowly working her way up. And from accounts of everyone that's worked with her, it's, she was brilliant. But she also, her biggest strength is she could see strength in others. So it wasn't necessarily her saying, you know, this is what you have to do. This is, you know, do it my way. She could recognize strength in others and then push them to greatness. Mm. So. She later on um, went to and worked in the SCLC with Martin Luther King Jr. Oh. and was his basically, oh, I don't remember what her official position was, but she she was helping to run it. Some have argued that she was the voice behind the movement. So Martin Luther King Jr. might have been the the mouth and the spokesperson, but she was the one who laid the foundation. She laid the groundwork. And it and wasn't... that is true of a lot of civil rights people, Kel. I totally agree that could be oh, a point. Absolutely. Like even when you think about like Claudette Colvin and versus Rosa Parks and you know, there okay. there's a face and there are actors in the background. And it's it's great that you brought this character, but I'm, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you and I'm also gonna look no, that you're up right. for you. You brought up Rosa Parks, but she actually listened to Ella Baker speak before she ever participated in her own stance. Oh. And and so what for me, what really rose Ella Baker is, again, like I said, she recognizes greatness in others, is she witnessed the sit-ins that happened at Greensboro, and for her, that was kind of like a, you know, flashy moment, like, this could be it. So she, after that happened, she realized that the youth is really what's going to take this movement to the next level. So she convinced Martin Luther King Jr. to foot the bill, but to invite student leaders from all over the country to come together. And so they did. And from her, SNCC was born, which is mm. the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And so I wouldn't say that she's technically the founder, but it wouldn't have existed if she didn't ask them all to come together mm -hmm. and really she pushed that. So she ended up leaving the SCLC and was helping form SNCC, who then did the sit-in movements, who participated in the Freedom Rides and Freedom Summer. So all of the big movements that happened in the civil rights, she laid a hand in that. And I, I think those movements are ones that led to individual changes that are mm -hmm. part of the larger civil rights movement that I think sometimes get glossed over as like a vocabulary term in a textbook. And that's that's probably part of the reason why, like Ella Baker, it, it wasn't until you said uh, the... the Snick the SNCC, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that I knew exactly what I knew about her. Uh, yeah. And it all kind of snapped back. I, I, I've always taught her as a leader of that. 
um, you know, maybe not, I, I've never said founder, but I, I would now if I had to teach that concept. I would say a background of it. And, you know, she understood that this was a bigger movement than just, it's not just one person, it's all of us can do something. And then to recognize that the youth could play such a big role, I think was huge. Well, because- look at Gen Z now. I mean, we talked about work uh, experiences and how we, teachers have changed their opinions on things. And I, I mean, I think that Gen Z's played a role in that for a lot of us. And COVID did too, you know, taking back our time, seeing how yeah, work yeah. can function, especially for millennials and other generations. Uh, I mean, I can only speak for my generation, but, you know, it, it's, been a, it's been an awakening of sorts to see, wow, work doesn't have to work that way. But you got to welcome the ideas of other generations that are different from yours to really see that. And that's great that she was a figure that could do that. Um, so anything else you were saying, wanted to say, I, I wasn't trying to cut you off. I oh, just... No, 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 not at all. I just, I feel like she is almost an unsung hero and I, I didn't even know who she was until I was in college, right. but she spent her entire life advocating, you know, for racial injustice. And I feel like she does need to be celebrated because I don't know how successful the civil rights movement could have been if she wasn't there. She seems like the, the 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 bull that, that keeps it like forces it forward mm-hmm. uh even if she does and she doesn't care her her goal it seems to me in my short research that i've ever done on her is success of the civil rights movement not individual fame it didn't matter what she got out of it it mattered what the movement got out of it and mm-hmm. i mean i think if you look at any list of top civil rights leaders ella baker's going to be on it but nobody's you're gonna have to go look most people are gonna have to go look up ella baker you know what i mean even me she seems like the 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 bull that, that keeps it like forces it forward uh even if she does and she doesn't care her her goal it seems to me in my short research that i've ever done on her is success of the civil rights movement not individual fame it didn't matter what she got out of it it mattered what the movement got out of it and i mean i think if you look at any list of top civil rights leaders ella baker's going to be on it but nobody's you're gonna have to go look most people are gonna have to go look up ella baker you know what i mean even me as a person who studied history I didn't study U.S. history. You, you Sherry has, has is raising her hand. She had to look up Ella Baker. Uh, is that what you were saying? I will tell you that I was a women's studies minor in college, and I had never heard of her until Kelly mentioned her. So I've just been looking her up as well. And that's the glory of the show. That's probably true for a lot of listeners. You know, there's the levels of his, the people who listen to this are historians to hist- history lovers to to just the the person who likes history or studied history a little bit to my dad who never studied history and learns in every episode of the show uh, is sometimes shocked to see that they knew of this person but never really knew anything about their importance you know um, I think that it's great to have all aspects of the, that in our listenership because it's for all of them as teachers we teach to every every listener in our audience and uh, you know um, we have to teach it in a way that not everybody knows everything about this so I'm no expert on Ella Baker. So when you said it, I had to remind myself who she was for sure. Yeah. And I'm sorry. I kind of went fast. I don't want to do her, do her any injustice, but um, I know we are kind of just doing snippets, but she's, she's badass. Because some dumb man like me said, we're just doing snippets. (laughs) I said, you not only can you only choose one woman of history, but you have to do a snippet. And that's not what I said, Uh, but I'm doing a snippet too. If it makes, if it makes the audience uh, understand what Kelly's trying to say, my person I have every intent of someday covering her on the show. I don't know when. I can't figure out where she will fit. But I, I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm covering her tonight because I don't want to miss the opportunity somewhere down the road not to cover this person. And uh, these are shortened discussions on aspects of women's history. Um, of course, we've covered several women on the show uh, worth noting as well um, that we're not noting tonight. But Kelly, anything else you want to say or Sherry, any questions for Kelly? No, I just, I'm, I'm always fascinated. And again, I'm not a historian, but I was a very eager history student my entire life and a great admirer of Dr. King's and, you know, have gone to Atlanta, gone to all of his uh, memorials, gone on all the tours of Ebenezer and uh, where he is laid to rest. And I just, I, I'm kind of amazed that I've never heard of this woman before. Interesting. Very interesting. And she wasn't in a position like Thurgood Marshall or something like that, where she was going to be labeled in every history book always you know what i mean as the first of something so and it's also still the 50s and 60s -hmm. when women really weren't getting these positions of power Mm -hmm. and the fact that she was a leader is pretty huge still Mm -hmm. 
uh, unsung hero to say the least. Yeah, and, and we're singing her song right now, singing her praise, which is the perfect place to do it. Well, Kelly, if there's nothing else you wanted to add, thank you. I don't think you went too fast, and I don't think it was a snippet. I think it was the perfect introduction to Ella Baker, who we can uh, you know, encourage our listeners to go look at more, which is kind of what the point of this episode is. So I don't know if I should go next so that we're closing with Sherry, or Sherry, do you want to go next? Well, no, uh-huh. I think you should go because it's a good segue. If you're doing who I think you're doing, it's a good segue from what okay. Kelly did. Yeah, Ida B. fucking Wells. Uh, she is awesome. I mean, I've labeled category after category uh, for future seasons badasses, uh, people who came from the, the, the lowest points to the, the amazing heights that they climbed to or just shit I want to cover. And Ida B. Wells makes every list because I will cover her with a formal great mind treatment down the road, but I'm going to hit the highlights uh, right now because some stupid man said that was all I was allowed to do. But still, uh, Ida B. Wells, if you don't know who that is, I mean, Ida B. Wells Barnett, by the end of her life, uh, that hyphenating of her name in a period where that wasn't really a thing is something worth noting right off the bat. Ida B. Wells was a force to be reckoned with in her entire life. Uh, anybody, anytime I teach Ida B. Wells in my class, and it, uh, I love teaching Ida B. Wells, I show her picture, her famous picture of a petite young woman, which is an important part of the story that she was a petite young woman through most of her career. But uh, by the end of her career, as she aged, she turned into this woman that you would never want to fuck with. Like if you looked at her, you'd be like, she would beat my ass. If you look at a picture of an aging Ida B. Wells, I, I'm like, I, I'm like, who would fuck with her? No one. I don't know why you would. And feel free to look it up if you want to. Uh, but born into slavery in 1862, she and her family were, like so many, freed by the Emancipation Proclamation, but not until around late 1865, not just when Mississippi was conquered by the Union or reconquered for the Union, uh, but by the time it reached the more provincial areas of, of Mississippi, you know, similar to what we do when we recognize Juneteenth and the fact that it took a hot second to communicate the Emancipation Proclamation even after the war had ended. Of course, after emancipation, her, her life took a drastic turn. Uh, her and her family were now free. Her father and mother were Fairly, her father was an educated man uh, during his enslavement. Uh, he was the only son of uh, of the plantation owner, uh, so that was kind of a, a privileged status there. In a way, uh, he was given an education. He was he had an artisan skill set. Her mother uh, also slightly educated. Uh, they had a, I guess they they I don't want to say they were like better off, but they in a way were more prepared uh, to excel and as as free men and women after the emancipation. Uh, However, by the time Ida B. Wells, you know, hit her teenage years, uh, she was struck with uh, a terrible tragedy. Uh, Outbreak of yellow fever in her hometown led to her parents and one of her brother's deaths. Uh, However, she had, I still believe, five to six siblings uh, alive, and they were all younger than her. Uh, And following the loss of her parents, she returned and working with the Masonic Lodge that her father uh, belonged to, was able to basically tell them, listen, my parents would sooner die, come back to life and die again than see my siblings be broken up and put into other homes. So Ida B. Wells basically fought for the position of caretaker and said to the Masonic Lodge, if you give me a job, I'll take care of the children. I will raise my parents' family, my siblings, on my own. And to put this in perspective, when she became a teacher, she was 16 when this all happened. 16 when she became caretaker for her siblings and she was teaching shortly thereafter uh so just to put that in a little perspective for you she was very young when all this is going on uh the loss of family members and taking on such responsibility uh she worked to support her family until they came of age and then eventually she had the opportunity to move to memphis i believe with one of her sisters this would have offered a, a lot more opportunity for her and her sister to move to a big city i believe with an aunt or aunt and uncle or something like that uh i will say the only reason she evaded and this is a badass moment for her evaded the yellow fever epidemic that struck her family so brutally uh was that she was visiting her grandparents out of town and when they told her uh it's actually kind of sad so memphis had a yellow fever outbreak and uh, instead of quarantining um because they didn't understand mosquitoes were carrying the disease instead of quarantining her hometown that her hometown actually uh, welcomed refugees trying to escape yellow fever from the city which was a common thing yellow fever would hit the city wealthy affluent people would leave the city to escape it escape any threat of it 
And in doing that, they brought it with them. And that's what took her parents' life. But whenever they were told, told Ida B. Wells that after her parents died, she could not go back to take care and watch after her siblings uh, and take, be, you know, help her family out right in the middle of the epidemic, she said no. She got on a freight train and went back there anyways. So she just, even from her youngest age, was such a, such a badass figure. In Memphis, she continued to be a teacher until eventually she spoke out against the policies, I believe racially motivated policies of her school board. Uh, and she was not, her contract was not renewed the next year. Uh, that is just one moment where she didn't really give a shit. But that teaching provided her with an opportunity to get involved in a business. Uh, specifically, uh, she became one-third partial owner of the Memphis Free, Spe Free Speech and Headlight newspaper outlet periodical. One-third of the owner. Now, let me put this in perspective. She came into the business as a already, you know, semi-known writer. Uh, and the owners asked her to come write for their paper. And she said she would only write for the paper if she was a partner and they made her an equal third share partner in a time where women owning businesses was incredibly still very uncommon. You know, it is something really, uh, you know, interesting to me. And eventually she will become half owner uh, as they buy her and another buyout of the partnership. And I'll go into the details of that someday when I cover her. But there was a story that I came across that was so cool with her kind of like moments of badassery. Uh, I never knew this about Ida B. Wells until I was doing some research on her. In 1884, she was on a train northbound or from the north southbound, I believe. And she had bought a ticket in what was called a ladies' car, which was an old train car that was like just for ladies traveling by themselves so they could feel safer. Uh, you know, as a, in a time where women in the industrial age were certainly traveling alone and more independent, you know, there was a place where like they could be free from like any wandering eyes or harassers or whatever, maybe just to feel safer. And she bought a ticket for the ladies' car, and the conductor who was enforcing the precursors to Jim Crow segregation laws uh, said that she had to move to the smoking cabin and the smoker's car and she refused it got to the point where they moved her luggage and she refused to give a receipt and this petite young woman i would say she was young she was small and they can when the conductor tried to forcibly remove her she refused she like braced herself like a toddler who doesn't want to be picked up almost slamming into the seat and refused to get up to the point where i believe she had to be formally escorted by multiple figures off the train and i i think like like the sleeves of her coats were ripped off in the process. Like it was that aggressive of a, an attempt to uh, remove her from the train. She ended up suing. And then before the suit was done, she, she did it again and sued again. And in both cases, she won her case in the Tennessee court system. Uh, she won $500 and later $200. And, and this story is just so cool uh, because she won her case and then the fuckers took it to the appeals court and it made it all the way to the Tennessee Supreme Court, which struck down her decision. They said something like the Tennessee Supreme Court decision was something like, we think it is evident that the purpose of the defendant in error was a, to harass well, uh, the the train conductors with this lawsuit that she was doing it for like revenge, not to not to combat some sort of social injustice, uh, and it was not necessarily uh, you know about the ticket or anything for such a short ride. It was a bullshit decision, but I didn't know that she was you know fighting this fight not twelve years before Plessy versus Ferguson brought about the same issue uh, and led to the the legalization, legitimization, I guess, of Jim Crow uh, segregation. Of course, as an uh, author for Memphis Free Speech and Headlight, she advocated against lynching in the American South. Uh, one of the things that got her started as an activist was the death of Thomas Henry Moss and others who were killed by a lynch mob. Uh, Thomas Henry Moss was part owner of a uh, grocery store called People's Grocery. And when you really dig into the details, and this is a quick overview of it, one of the people of the lynch mob who executed Thomas Henry Moss was a rival grocer. The business was doing too well. Uh, and through Ida B. Wells, writings after this moment uh you know she began more actively writing against racism in memphis in the south and actually encouraging people to leave memphis and she wasn't the only one but her writing was getting more and more popular and as she encouraged more and more people to leave memphis there was actually an economic crisis as too many african-american families left memphis to escape racism and segregation it led to like an economic collapse of the city temporarily uh, so Ida B. Wells is making a bit of a name for herself, certainly as a, a radical in her Southern Horrors or, um, oh, I forget what the other one's called, the, the Red something, I can't remember what it's called. I'd have to go back into my notes somewhere and dig it up. But either way, her, her writing became more and more aggressive towards uh, lynching in the American South. And that's kind of what she's known for. One thing I always love about Ida B. Wells 
is she told the story primarily through statistics. She used irrefutable facts to just discuss the, the horror, the, I'm going to use the word epidemic of lynching that was in the United States. I believe in just 50 years or so, thousands were, were lynched. And I think the statistic is like 70% or more of them were African-Americans. And then if you dig into another 20 plus percent of them, it was, they were uh, people who sided whites that sided with blacks and so in the advancing civil rights and equality uh and this is through the you know into the 1920s of course i mean federal anti-lynching laws what formally came in the book like a year or two ago so it's this is a, a a dark stain on american history but the point in bringing all this up is that she is by far a a, a radical uh she did not let anything stop her not the fact that she was a woman not the fact that she was a minority a person of color she was willing to buck any system that stood in the way of rights that she felt she deserved and of course those rights will continue to be centered around race but as a woman also uh enfranchisement to continue on um i will say while touring in the north and doing a speaking tour and then settling in new york for a brief moment simultaneously where simultaneously when her partner fled Memphis, fearing for his life, their print shop was burned down. Their, their, their business operation was burned down, and they never went back to the South for some time. It was from there that she became kind of a big voice in the early phases of the civil rights movement in the days of, like, Frederick Douglass is a friend of hers. Uh, for example, in her book, The Southern Horror, uh, book Southern Horrors, he wrote the pre preface to that, to that book. So she is with and working with every major early civil rights activist. Uh, she often feuded. Uh, eventually with Booker T. Washington for his kind of acquiescence to, you know, the situation that they faced in the American South. And it's one thing to say W.B.E.B. Du Bois and Washington feuded back and forth, uh, being in different worlds. Ida B. Wells was in Booker T. Washington's world, in the Deep South, in Memphis, and she was still fighting it. And she did not like the way that he did not, his, his plan to advance it. What pisses me off is she was, a like Kelly kind of said with Ella Baker and Sherry's right, it was a good transition. Uh, she was a founding member of the NAACP, but wasn't like regularly invited back because she was often seen as too radical and she she was not like regularly attendance in regular attendance or really listed as a founder now she's listed as a a founding force behind it but as an early like i mean you would see it associated with people like wb boys but not ida b wells uh she founded several other groups along the way that continued to oust her for often being too radical and what i see by too radical is uh when men were involved that meant two activists for a woman and when women were involved too aggressive to gain support from the general population. And that's kind of the two things that kind of got her ousted from many of these groups. One of my favorite moments was, though, uh, Jane Adams, uh, a white woman from Chicago, founder of Hall House, the settlement movement, a helper of poor people, immigrants, populations, etc. Big force, a great figure. Uh, she actually wrote heavily against lynching. And Ida B. Wells actually wrote uh, an essay praising her, uh, you know, advocation of the cause against lynching and outright saying that lynching of minorities or anybody is wrong that you know it violates constitutional rights um but in jane adams writing on lynching she actually said that we need to we should assume that they're you know we should give them the benefit of the doubt that i'm sure there was a reason that whites in the south resorted to this that they felt they had no other option and i was like oh fuck jane adams said this like i was a jane adams fan i'm like oh right a decent person uh and then ida b wells is like I, I value, she writes this counterblast, she's like, I really value that she's combating lynching. And I value Jade Adams as a person. She works with her a lot through her career. But then she goes on to like call out the total bullshit of, of Jane Adams writing. Like, you cannot give them the benefit of the doubt. That's appeasement. That's like just giving them a free pass. But from there, she'll go on to, with others to pro protest the Chicago World's Fair. It was around that time that she married uh, Fernand L. Barnett. Uh, who was a rare gem of a nice guy who actually supported her continuing her career. And she never stopped working once they had several children, often just traveling with a nurse and her several kids as she went on speaking tours. One of my favorite moments in Ida B. Wells' history is that she, whenever she was part of a suffragette march, she was told to march towards the back of the, the group to not aggravate the masses. And she said, basically, fuck that, and marched front and center with everybody else. I, I think that she represents a, a piece of the story of you know, women, the, the women's movement, uh, the women's uh, suffrage movement that, that kind of gets overlooked and overshadowed. I, I was impressed that she was also under government surveillance during World War I for being a, quote, potential race agitator, but then went on to possibly become uh, a person who might be a political candidate in the future. There was one thing that I also thought was interesting is that her first return to the South was after, it was after the Red Summer, 
uh, in which riots and massacres throughout the United States broke out in response to race relations. And this one was in Elaine, Arkansas, and it was the Elaine Massacre. And I never knew what this was until this year when I taught it because I was like, oh, these are major city massacres. And then I was reading about it. I'm like, wow, some of the bloodiest areas, the highest death tolls were in rural areas like Elaine, Arkansas, where 100 to 250 people were killed. I'm sorry, 100 to 200 African-Americans were killed and only five whites died. Uh, it was one of the bloodiest issues of the uh, period of the Red Summer, and it wasn't a city. It was a small town. It was a large percentage of the African-American population. Uh, to wrap this up, though, because I don't want to take up too much more time, uh, she in, in 1900, she wrote Our National Crime. And since lynching was her big thing that she was advocating against uh, beyond everything else she fought for, she said in that, first, lynching is color line murder. Second, crimes against women is an excuse, not the cause. And third, it is a national crime that requires a national remedy. Um, I, I think that that quote is what I show in my class every year. It really hits all the points that lynching is targeting a specific group of people and that often the uh, assault of white women in consensual black-white relationships was the justification for these lynchings and that it required a national remedy and that national remedy didn't come until 70 years after uh, 70 80 oh god i'm so fucking bad about that. like almost 90 years after ida b wells death uh she died in 1931 and that's what I brought for Ida B. Wells. I plan to cover in the future more detailed and focused, but any thoughts, questions, concerns? No, I, I agree with you. Ida B. Wells is a badass. And the thing that kind of stuck, I didn't know about the Jane Addams quote. That shook me a little bit. Um, yeah. But another thing that really stood out for me is when you're talking about, you know, her plight, It it's still going on where you know when you made the point of well she's a radical but if a man said it it's not and it's the same exact thing that we still see you know Mm. if a woman voices it oh well she's this but in the same turn if a man does it it's somewhat acceptable you know it's like oh he's a you know a go-getter he's aggressive and if a woman it's a different story so it's i mean it's sad, but I mean, I do love Ida B. Wells. I think you did a good job with that. <laughs> Sherry, is this is this someone that you knew about? No, you just mentioned uh, her to me. First of all, if if you're going to do an episode of her in more detail, <laughs> I wonder how long that's going to be. So, oh my gosh! Just I, snippets. <laughs> I never said snippets, and, and I wrote. Uh, I, I I told don't. Zach I, I love the he did on Julia Tafana because it was 17 minutes. That was great. That That is my attention span. But be that as it may, I don't want to take that away from the history of Ida Wells. But, you know, it occurred to me when you were talking about her and then, you know, my ignorance with the person Kelly brought up that, you know, the field of education really needs to start rethinking how they offer United States history classes to students at all grade levels, because the, these stories are lost in the absolute breakneck speed that teachers have to fly through such important pieces of our history. And these people are going to get lost unless somebody does something about it. Um, you know, I, I think about when I graduated from high school in 1987, those teachers had the same 180 days to teach us, you know, American history. You as history, you have the same 180 days. But there's 40 more years of history that are part of that. And, and somebody is going to have to change the way we deliver that because those stories deserve to be heard for people who are really interested in learning about that particular niche of history. And, um, you know, I, I hope somebody is in a leadership position to start doing that because all we are doing by cramming more and more American history into 180 days is watering it down so that nobody really learns anything of substance. And, and I find that um, a shameful part of our profession. No, I completely agree. We got, we can't we have too much to cram in one year. Go ahead, the Kel. Solution, the solution is to get rid of standardized testing because I do have the opportunity to teach an elective, and we get to dive into whatever we need to. If mm-hmm. we need to spend more time on a certain area, we can. So I feel like those yep. students get a better and higher quality education than my standardized test subject kids do. 
and yeah. that is where the downfall lies when it's like yeah that's great but i have to move on because i still have to teach you 50 more years of history and well, that's and the other thing the other thing is too it's like when someone raises a good point you can tangent for a day you can enjoy that oh let's dig into that you guys want to why not you know and it's just it just sucks in the upper level courses we do get a little freedom there uh at least in the uh, my ib classes i do but i i completely agree with what sherry said and kelly uh seconded there but uh, Sherry, would you like to share your snippet? I guess maybe as a, the the man of the night, I guess I just felt like I had to come prepared, extra prepared. I guess that was me compensating for my oh, well, you, my my. I don't know. Nobody would ever accuse you of being not being prepared for that. Um, but um, no, um, I agree with Kelly. However, and first of all, I the the information about this podcast got wires crossed with me so many different ways. So uh, my brain has been going in a lot of directions in the last week, but I also found it very difficult to choose just one person. But when I weighed um, all of my options, just from a psych perspective, um, I decided to choose Margaret Mead. And what's interesting is as you were presenting um, your historic figures, they, they these were all contemporaries of each other. Ida Wells passed away um, prior to Margaret Mead and uh, Ella Baker, but um, they they all lived in the same time frame. And I think that there's a lot of crossover in their, their life's history and the type of things that they fought to achieve. I teach Margaret Mead um, as somebody who studied adolescence in a psychology class, but by trade, she was a cultural anthropologist. And her story is an interesting one because she started off her career studying people who Americans had not heard of before and ended her career as being a fairly pivotal figure in the early part of the women's rights movement in the 1960s and 70s. So it was an, an interesting career path that led her um, into a related but a different area later in her life. Uh, but she's got a really interesting pre-story. Um, she was uh, born into a fairly well-to-do family and um, was an academic early in her life. Um, she went to Barnard College as an undergraduate and became really interested in the idea of studying people other than Americans. Um, she finished up a, a master's degree at Barnard as well and uh, befriended a professor who ended up being her champion, but she wanted to work on a doctoral degree in her early 20s on studying some other group of people. But um, there were lots of limitations to the work that women could do in general in the 1920s, and that also included academics at the time. And um, she really had to, to fight to get the opportunity to do this. And when Columbia University, which is the institution that awarded her degree, came back with their decision on her doctoral study, they agreed that she could go study another group of people, but they were only willing to send her to the Western United States to study Native American cultures. And that is something that Margaret Mead was not interested in. She wanted to go somewhere else. And I always tell my students that you have to understand the context of the time that this was in the 1920s when not a whole lot was known about primitive cultures. And so she really had to fight and claw her way to even get the opportunity to travel someplace out of the United States to study somebody else. And uh, she had a mentor at Columbia who ended up uh, really going to bat for her and being her champion. And so the concession was made that they would send her to, to Samoa, which is part of uh, the Polynesian islands in the middle of the Pacific. Um, and they agreed to send her there because there was an American naval base that she was required to live at um, so that she could be protected. Because again, they were sending a young woman into an unknown area. And I think that there was a lot of suspect about um, tribal nations and people that were not well known to the world, but she got her opportunity to do that. So uh, she spent uh, time as a young woman in her 20s, trying to integrate into the lives of different tribal groups that were part of the island nation of Samoa. And she learned that their societies were very different than the United States societies. Uh, she learned that lots of their societies were actually matriarchal in nature. She learned that adolescents um, had uh, roles in their families and in their 
community structures far earlier than American adolescents did. And she did her best, given the limitations of the era and of her actual time there, to try to integrate herself into these people's lives. She she talked and met with families. She helped care for children. She ate meals with them. Um, she did study the language of the uh, tribe that she was part of uh, for several weeks before she went over there. So she did have limited communications with them, but ended up spending time over there and doing very basic research. And that is always something that I am impressed with, that a lot of the early researchers had the most simple research techniques. And Margaret Mead kept a journal uh, with uh, pen or pencil um, in her own self-proclaimed very terrible handwriting. And that was her research method. And when I teach my students about the history of psychological research, a lot of the foundational research that we study as a historic piece of psychology was done very simply. And that's very different than research that is done now. Uh, that is very complicated. It involves lots of statistics. But I always tell students that those simple research methods continue to yield understanding about the topics that, you know, somebody like uh, Margaret Mead did or uh, Jane Goodall was my birthday special a couple seasons ago. Uh, Jane Goodall also kept, you know, pencil paper journals um, in the jungles of Tanzania to understand about chimpanzee behavior. I always tell my students, Krista McAuliffe, who was supposed to be uh, the first civilian in space um, on Space Shuttle Challenger, and, you know, her proposal to NASA. NASA, when she got chosen for that, was she was going to keep a diary of her time in space and use that to help instruct her students in New Hampshire. And so, you know, journal keeping and diary writing has always been a very valuable source of research. And so that's what Margaret Mead did. When she came back to the States, she finished up her doctoral dissertation and ended up publishing a book about it uh, called... Um, a coming of Age in Samoa. It was a book that featured her observations of mostly female adolescents and their roles uh, in these island cultures. And it became a success in the United States because it represented one of the first pieces of literature that was nonfiction that people could learn about the way others were in a different part of the world. And so that gained her a lot of notoriety and she ended up traveling back uh, to different islands that were part of that South specific area of island nations and writing other books. Um, she even wrote a book on sexual practices um, of people who are part of those island nations. And again, to give it some context, was very controversial at the time. But um, she is somebody who really predated and, and set the foundation for the work of female researchers in the social sciences. And that's something that I always appreciated about her. Uh, there's a common quote that is sometimes referenced to Margaret Mead, uh, never doubt a small group of people can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And there's actually no evidence that she ever said that quote, but they think it's been paraphrased from different articles that she wrote uh, toward the latter part of her lifetime. But um, that is uh, sometimes how people know about Margaret Mead. But in the later parts of her life, um, she was a teacher at a variety of universities. Um, and my favorite part of Margaret Mead's life is that uh, she was the curator of an area of the Natural History Museum in New York City. And that is someplace that I had the opportunity uh, to spend a lot of time at this past summer. The museum is actually in the process of uh, redesigning a wing, but all the artifacts that are in this wing that come from people of Pacific Islands were collected by Margaret Mead. And for a long time, she had a very small office at the museum, and that was her little corner of antiquity that uh, she created uh, that has long outlasted her legacy since she passed away in the 1970s. Um, but it's, it's really interesting to look at Margaret Mead because um, she was considered a very famous woman as she gained notoriety through her books and then speaking engagements, articles that she wrote for people and her appearances on television. She is somebody who enjoyed having those platforms to be able to share her knowledge and the public embraced her. Time Magazine called her the mantle of omniscience and the mother of the world at different points in their publications. But she was somebody who was very well regarded as an academic, but also as a humanitarian. And then uh, toward the end of her life, she really became very instrumental in the women's movement in the United States um, because she knew that women held 
different levels of responsibility in primitive tribal nations. And yet in a sophisticated country like the United States, uh, they were still relegated to remaining at home, caring for children, tending to their husbands. And, and although that is important and worthy work, um, there should have been more opportunities for women. And so she really was very vocal about that uh, toward the end of her life. Another thing that I think is a great connection to uh, one of Kelly's subjects of interest is that um, she passed away in 1978 um, from cancer, but um, Jimmy Carter actually awarded her uh, with the National Medal of Freedom, which is a civilian honor uh, for people who have uh, allowed people in the United States to to learn about great things. And so um, I always think that that was maybe given to her a little too late. But, um, you know, in the end, uh, that is something that she's also remembered for. You know, when you look back at, at early women who were researchers, um, and though her, her methods were very simple, Margaret Mead was a pioneer who really laid the groundwork for, for all of the other female researchers in the social sciences who came after her. So I am a great admirer of hers. And the thing that I like best about Margaret Mead is if, if you look at pictures of her later in her life, um, you know, she was very unopposing. She used to wear capes and carry a walking stick all the time. I mean, she was not somebody who was particularly glamorous, um, but she was. She was an, an academic powerhouse and always willing and very passionate uh, to speak out um, about things that became very dear to her in her studies. Well, I love that. I, is she on your wall of heads? She is. Yeah, she's up in the front yeah, of my room. So that's where, yeah, so, so that's, where, that's when we've talked about her before, because I had no idea who this was uh, when you said Margaret Mead. But, you know, the whole time you were saying it, and finally you said uh, it, is it, it, in my mind went to Jane Goodall. So many parallels drawn there just about how they were treated wh when they were sent away. Um, the other thing is, Kelly and I both got this look when you started talking about sex and psychology again. We both got this look on our face like, oh, fuck, here she goes again. Uh, so what just happened to Kelly? What just happened to Kelly? Kelly's uh, zooming in. Well, but those, those were taboo subjects. And for somebody, you know, when you talk about somebody like Ella Baker, Ida Wells, these women who were dogged in their their passion to try to convince more and more people that their beliefs were the right beliefs. And I think that they share that with Margaret Mead. Um, you know, I think what makes Mead a little different than even Jane Goodall, and Jane Goodall admits that, you know, the reason why she was hired by National Geographic to go do that research is because she was a young, good-looking girl. I don't think the same thing applies to Margaret Mead. Need, um, but it, it doesn't, you know, they, they were both just so fundamental in uh, what they have contributed to, to women in, in the field of research um, that they did. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, and I think that is kind of a different area of, of world history or U.S. history that of course is never taught in history classes as well, but nonetheless important and, and fascinating too. Very fascinating. What a fascinating story. Kelly, um, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, just to kind of to add on, you you did mention that they're all very like kind of passionate, but I think one of the characteristics that we've not hit on is all three of these women. It's not just women's rights; they're advocating for human rights. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that needs to be said as well, because women have always been, you know, kind of these second class citizens, especially in the time periods that all of the three women we discussed were second-class citizens. So they're not only fighting for other humans, like everyone, but they're also fighting for women as well. So it's not just that one aspect. I always like, I point out the asinine reality that women are a minority group, and yet at 50% of the time in the population of the United States, they are the majority of the population. And, and I'm like, listen to that simple fact, class. Listen to that simple reality. It doesn't make any fucking sense uh, that it should be that way. But, well, that was awesome. What a great group of women. Of course, we'll come back for final thoughts, but I want to take a quick five-minute pivot or so to Patreon for a quick last call, and then i got to get these ladies out of here because I know we're running long. Uh, but, because, uh, you know, I, I talked about IDP Wells. But, well, that was awesome. What a great group of women. Of course, we'll come back for final thoughts, but I want to take a quick five-minute pivot or so to Patreon for a quick last call, and then i got to get these ladies out of here because I know we're running long. Uh, but, because, uh, you know, I, I talked about IDP Wells before. Uh, either way, uh, listeners, uh, we're going to recap on the character from the season four premiere, Julia Tafana, in our Patreon discussion real quick. 
as well as uh, get Sherry and Kelly's thoughts on the, uh, the, the theme for season four, uh, What If. Uh, so listeners, just follow the link in the show notes to get access to this exclusive Last Call bonus episode uh, with me, Sherry, and Kelly. You know, mm-hmm. it is fun bar talk too, you know. something to to ponder, but I also hate it because it's like, well, yeah. that did not happen. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like I, I, I said in the episode, it's as a historian, not my favorite. As a teacher, hate it. But as a podcaster, why the fuck not? Uh, so uh, that's that's our discussion on on what if and uh, Julia Tafanam, Patreons, thank you for your support and uh, supporting the show. It's good to be back on last call and Patreon land. We kept it pretty clean that time, which is odd. I probably because Colin and Luke aren't here. We we bring out the best and the worst in each other, but uh, you know we'll see what happens next time. Uh, but listeners, uh, if you want access to that exclusive last club, so we discussed uh, the legacy of Julia Tofana, as well as uh, our opinions about what if history, you can follow the link in the show notes to get access to this exclusive last call episode. Well, any final thoughts as we wrap up this episode? Because we have been on here just about long enough. Yeah, so I mean, I just want to get a plug as the person who is the matriarch of this podcast. Um, I, I One of the things that I appreciate about Margaret Mead is that she worked well into her senior citizenry. And I think that's something that we don't talk a lot about throughout history. We talk a lot about what people do in their 20s and 30s and 40s, but, you know, props Props to to people who are still working into uh, the latter part of their life. And I think that's something that contributes to uh, people having good energy at the end of their life, just always being lifelong learners. And uh, and I and I think that's important to highlight as the matriarch. Well, I, I think that's so true, too. And I think these all three of these figures really fought till the end until they couldn't do it anymore. Kelly, you have something to add? I no, I, I would agree. I mean, Ella Baker would be the same way. I mean, she. There are human rights organizations named after her because her main mission was human rights, and so I think that is still a struggle that we don't have, unfortunately. But. Yeah. For for me, it was all about Kelly. Kind of hit it. I don't know if she said it in pregame or Patreon or what, but that we cover badass women a lot on the show, and I think that it's hard to find a key female figure of history that didn't have to be badass because uh, it was always so much of a, uh, there was always some structure in, in the way of just simple success that would have been simple for anybody else. Uh, and I think that that's something that really just overcoming patriarchy, overcoming the system that's in the play, the structure that's in place, it makes almost all of these figures uh, of women's history, just, uh, uh, just at least a little badass uh, from psychology to history. So I don't know. Well, all right. Well, that's it. If you enjoyed this episode of Drinks with Great Minds in History, then we hope you'll consider supporting the show over on the DGMH Patreon page, where you can get access to everything from last call bonus discussions from your favorite episodes of Shots and Psych, uh, from pregame to what I'm teaching episodes uh, available to all levels, Colin Chats China and Pete Chats Portugal, uh, the Moment series and more. Uh, we will, you know, polish that up from a solo episode, uh, but there's so much on Patreon a- accessible to every member of every level. Uh, so we hope you consider checking it out. Uh, of course, follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at DGMH History and join in uh, at the uh, DGMH Facebook group, um, Drinks with Great Minds History Podcast Facebook group. Uh, there you get access to all sorts of fun chats, debates, etc. Um, and yeah, well, ladies, what are we doing a shot of tonight? I am finally at a point where I could shoot my um, banana pudding sipping cream, something Sherry introduced me to long ago. <laughs> Sherry, what are you going to shot of tonight? <laughs> Uh, so my uh, my ice cap, uh, my uh, it is a uh, platinum seven times distilled extra smooth vodka. It's and it's called Platinum Seven X. It's from a distillery in oh. Kentucky, someplace. But I, it's made by Sazerac Company. Oh, fun, neat. Cool. It's distilled seven right. times grain. Not enough. It, it worked great I as an it. ice pack. I so love it. I love it. It was a great ice pack. I'll post a picture. And then I'll get Sherry's approval before I post it. Uh, Kelly, what do you do a shot of today? Oh, my God. Jack Fire. Jack, my fire. Jack Fire. For my fire badass bitches. 
Oh my gosh, I didn't say that. I don't say that word. Michelle. I'm allowed to say that. I know you are. I know you are. All right. Well, uh, ladies, thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for representing the ladies of DGMH and joining me, even though I told uh, Kelly she was only allowed to bring one woman snippet for the whole episode. Uh, no, I felt like I like under like underscored her so bad. You did not underscore Ella Baker. Um, I just found so many badass moments for Ida B. Wells, I couldn't stop myself. But I will be timestamping, Cherry, to see how long I talked versus how long you talked, because if it's even close to the same, um, I'm pointing. <laughs> it's not the same to me. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, all of them were perfect. Great stories. Cheers to you, ladies. Uh, cheers to all our listeners and all our, our uh, female listeners who are enjoying and embracing women's history right along with us. We, we salute you all. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.